Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fregel Byrne. Every week I speak to leading sustainability thinkers and practitioners, scientists, economists, NGOs, business leaders and investors. We discuss the sustainability imperative, the key challenges, the latest thinking, and what's working in sustainability, resilience and regeneration. I'm very pleased today to welcome Nate Hagens to the podcast. Nate is a well-known speaker on the big picture issues facing human society. He currently teaches a systems synthesis honors seminar at the University of Minnesota, Reality 101, a survey of the human predicament. Nate is on the boards of Post Carbon Institute, Bottleneck Foundation, IIER, and the Institute for the Study of Energy and the Future. Previously, he was lead editor of The Oil Drum, one of the most popular and respected websites for analysis and discussion of global energy supplies and the future implications of the upcoming energy transition. Thank you very much, Nate, for joining me today on the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Glad to be here, Fergal. So can you just maybe set the scene a little bit for the listeners and tell us a little bit about your background and your current work focus? Well, my background is uh, I studied business and I went and worked in Wall Street and I managed money for billionaires and I started to figure out uh, that they weren't any happier than the clerks processing their trades and that they were uh, trying to get the same neurotransmitters um, every day that all of us do but by building another shopping center or tearing down another rainforest or, or whatever and I started to be interested in the big picture and how that brain dynamic and how um, uh, energy and the environment and the fact that we don't pay for the external costs of the products we use, that's not included in our prices. And I got so obsessed with that story that I was reading books at night and not doing the right financial management time. And so I quit, uh, uh, wall street back in 2002. And since then I've been basically assembling uh, the whole story of how all this fits together. I got my PhD in in natural resources. Um, I uh, um, ran a big website on on oil uh, and sustainability. And now I teach a class called Reality 101, a survey of the human predicament at the University of Minnesota. And basically, um, I think we live in a culture that has islands of expertise in a sea of nonsense. We have so many people who are well-intentioned, pro-social, thinking about the right things, but they don't fly up high enough and look down at the big picture. And I think it's the big picture, the narrative that describes humans and our ecosystem now and what that portends for the future that's the map we need to look at. And so that's what my main work has been. Right, right. Um, um, lots to talk about there, um, for sure. Um, now, you've been uh, in this world for a little bit of time. Um, and uh, it, it, this is, things are changing. There's a uh, growing momentum. But, you know, and, and, and a plethora or a tsunami of, of, you know, problems and issues. What in particular is on your mind at the moment, Nate? Um. You know, pretty much everything keeps me awake uh, because we're we're headed towards what I call a, a fire ape singularity, and no one knows what to do. We're converging on these series of systemic risks. Um, I think 
you know, climate change and ocean issues from a long-term perspective are the biggest issues. Uh, but from a short-term and intermediate-term, behaviorally, we are not carbon-constrained, we're growth-constrained. And so I think social stability uh, and um, how we respond to a much, possibly much smaller economy in the coming decade, that's what keeps me awake now, um, because I think most people are are not, uh, we're, we're getting, uh, right now we're getting environmental and social justice uh, cues that those things are wrong. There's a problem with climate change, there's a problem with wealth inequality. We're not getting emotional signals yet that, energy and finance are risks and those are back burner things that are about to come to the front burner hot like right i want to talk about that but when you say growth constrained rather than carbon constrained what what, what point are you making there um <clears throat> we are part of a culture that since the agricultural revolution ten thousand years ago have self-organized around surplus so back in the 10,000 years ago, when we stopped hunter gathering in seven locations around the earth, we started to have our little bands of humans organize around food surplus. And we grew so much um, that we were able to have some people um, not work in food preparation. We would have warriors and priests and accountants and mayors and things like that. And then we came across the industrial revolution, uh, where we added the, the massive, uh, productivity from fossil carbon and hydrocarbons. And so we've got this system, this global economic system that requires, and is based on continued economic growth, which needs, energy and materials to grow, um, but it's becoming more difficult to grow. So we're using less and less sustainable ways to, to continue growth. For example, uh, um, central bank guarantees and credit and debt and things like that. So we have to keep growing. Otherwise, we can't pay all the monetary claims that we've created in prior decades. So in that sense, we're growth constrained. We will do anything we can to grow next year. And then if things look a little dicey for the following year, we'll print more money or make some new rule changes. Um, <clears throat> you may not be aware, but many countries in Europe now include prostitution and cocaine sales in their GDP calculations because that keeps them under the European Central Bank uh, um, ratio of debt to GDP so that they can keep getting uh, funding uh, and, and loan guarantees. So that's one example of a creative accounting for us to continue accessing uh, uh, credit to, to grow our economies. So I, I think that I think that's going to be um, that's going to swamp climate change in our social discussions in the coming five to seven years. And it's not that we're going to not care about climate um, or not believe that it's happening. We're just going to be fiscally and emotionally uh, focused on different issues. 
Right. A lot, a lot of very rich uh, uh, territory there. Um, the, 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 this question of debt and growth to pay finance. And I'd like to come back to that. So I, I guess um, you, you, you're, you're saying, you know, at the heart of this is, is, is this question of economic growth. Um, and I've spoken to several uh, people over the years, uh, researchers in this area and degrowth and, and even uh, more mainstream economists who worry about growth. Um, you tie growth to debt. Um, and I would I'd like to come back to that maybe later, this question of debt, because looking at it from a sustainability perspective, and I'm getting the impression what you're saying that you, you see a, a bigger um, uh, problem uh, that that is going to rear its 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 face there. Um, yeah, but just uh, coming back to you talked about a little bit about what's keeping you awake. I mean, how bad do you think the situation is today? Um, you know, you you can reel off any number of statistics on the Arctic, the Antarctic, the 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 amount of uh, concrete being put down, the the extinction rate. Um, you know, uh, the the carbon parts per million. You know, the, there are uh, no shortage of of t- terrifying uh statistics um and we there's whole whole domains that we don't at all understand or fully understand in terms of systems and and tipping points and so forth but um you know how bad do you think things are nate well by posing the question fergal one assumes to know the prior starting point of what i thought yesterday or last year or 10 years ago um So there's an absolute, is it good or bad? Or it's relative to my expectations of the future. I've already grieved long ago for the future of continued economic growth and saving uh, um, all of the remaining 5,500 mammal species uh, on the planet and keeping uh, a climate stable to the temperatures that it was, um, you know, uh, in the last 500,000 years. That future no longer is part of my distribution. But I think there are many, many possible futures still uh, on the table um, that are much better than people fear. And so I think our situation is much, much worse than the general public is aware, but probably better than some of us uh, who are on the the scout team, um, you know, super gluing ourselves to trains, et cetera, um, expect. I, I mean, the, the, the simple answer is I think we're in a no analog time with respect to carbon. I mean, you look at, uh, the CO2 parts per million, 415 or wherever it is today, it hasn't been that high in, in 3 million years. So for anyone to say, I absolutely know what's going to happen with climate, either benign or disastrous, Uh, We just don't know. I personally believe that some of the climate, many of the climate scenarios based on the scientists are, are way too aggressive on how many fossil fuels exist and are affordable to be burned. Uh, But at the same time, you know, the, the impacts you mentioned are, are already uh, pretty bad for, especially for oceans I think on the environmental side, we have to parse it into two categories. Um, one is the, the things that are directly linked to the size of the human economy, which requires energy. So climate change, CO2 in the atmosphere, 
uh, the, the acidification in the oceans, the, those are all linked to the metabolism of the human economy. Then there's a lot of other environmental impacts like plastics and toxics and cutting off elephant tusks and habitat destruction uh, and, you know, endangered species due to encroachment. You know, all those things, we could solve those things with um, political uh, um, constituency and activism. But the larger, uh, you know, longer term concerns about climate change and ocean, that's going to be linked to the size and scale of the human economy. And I'll correct what you said a little bit earlier. I don't think the economy is is linked directly to debt. It's linked directly to energy. And we're using debt to access more energy. So we can talk about that later if you like. Yes, yes. You, you talked about this, um, this very interesting, this um, – desire to to get the narrative to 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 uh put together the a narrative that makes sense that explains how we got here or what happened um i you know uh there's there's a lot of attention recently been on the whole question of this the, on the anthropocene um and 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 uh and some have, have have talked about the capitalocene you know linking it uh the environmental problems more to to you know a, a particular phase in the capitalist economy and then even more recently to you know the last 30 years in a particularly uh virulent form of well you call it neo neoliberal economics um, to what extent do you think that there's explanatory uh, power there or, or to, to what extent uh, do you look outside that to try and understand what's happening? I think animals in nature were the original investors. And in some ways, capitalism is the natural biological response of a social species finding a huge bank account of fossil carbon and hydrocarbons, but capitalism has been co-opted, uh, by crony capitalism and, uh, you know, funneling wealth to the top and all kinds of strange things that didn't have to happen and could be done differently. But I think as long as we have this amount of, of, uh, energetic surplus on the planet and we have a global, uh, culture functioning as a, a super organism in the sense that we, uh, as individuals, as small businesses, as corporations, as nations, and at a global level, our economy, we try to maximize our earnings every quarter, every year. And those earnings are completely dependent on energy inputs. And that energy is completely dependent on fossil carbon energy. And that fossil carbon energy has CO2 and waste products. So the system can be explained by the emergent property of 7.6 billion of us going through our daily lives, trying to make income and make profits for our company or whatever. And that all builds these nodes and networks of transportation and communication and energy use globally. Um, and so that is not going to stop on its own volition because there's no, it's immune from self-criticism. Uh, economic growth will continue until it doesn't. And I think that until it doesn't moment, it will be in the next decade. 
And so what I'm focused on is how to uh, prepare uh, communities, how to prepare young people, how to prepare a cultural ethic uh, for that moment in time, which I'm referring to as the great simplification. And I'm actually, uh, you know, I'm, I'm worried, but I'm, I'm at the end of the day, I'm, I'm optimistic in the sense that can humans be something other than this emergent energy eating superorganism? And I kind of feel at times that we had to do this over the last couple of hundred years to see what we have wrought um, and to choose a different sort of pathway for future generations of humans. Because all this energy and stuff, despite, I mean, in, in spite of, uh, in addition to uh, impacting nature in, in horrible ways, isn't really making us healthier or happier, at least in the developed world. We don't need all this energy and stuff to live lives that give us the same experiences, meaning neurotransmitters, emotional states of our successful ancestors. So ultimately it comes back to human behavior. How can we get the same feelings that our ancestors got by using less energy and waste? So that, that, that's very interesting. And, and, um, I think, you know, you sent me over a paper you're working on at the moment. And, um, one of the things that struck me and, and, and you talk about this is this idea that, um, it's just really how, how, uh, how, vitally dependent uh, i mean it's, it's, it sounds obvious in one way that our, our economies are on, on energy and and you say this is something that orthodox economic theory ignores um can you talk a little bit about that you talked about um you know a, a limit to the amount of energy that that we can afford to burn um to i i guess can you talk a little bit about the the, the i guess the energy blindness <laughs> um because you, you 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 in in the paper you analyze very uh clearly that just how much uh i guess manpower we get from a barrel of oil and so forth um can you kind of give us an overview of of that and and why energy is so important and why you think it it's coming that there's less around than people think Right. Well, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of issues to unpack there. First of all, the importance of energy. Um, everything in nature requires an energy profit. Um, and the same thing in human economies. So right now, I mean, for most of the last ten thousand years, we use human muscle labor and animal labor, like horses and oxen. But when we found fossil hydrocarbons, that changed everything. In your country, it was largely denuded of trees because they were using that for fuel and timber, et cetera, until they found coal. And coal was so powerful that they were able to um, develop all kinds of technology to increase the profits and, and wages and, and reduce the price of stuff. So today, it, we don't think about this because we're so focused on money and technology as the describers of our current wealth and, and economic uh, complexity. But today, take for example, one barrel of oil has 5.7 million British thermal units worth of energy in it. If you translate that into work, it's 1,700 kilowatt hours of work potential in a barrel of oil, which costs 60 US dollars right now. So for me or you to generate that amount of energy by our physical work would take 
four and a half years. So one barrel of oil for sixty dollars uh, or forty pounds um, substitutes for four and a half years of yours and my work. So then we talk about energy scale. World economy right now, if you translate all the coal, oil, and natural gas into oil terms, that works out to 110 billion barrels of oil equivalent per year, times four and a half years of human labor per, and we effectively have an army of hydrocarbon workers to the tune of 500 billion strong. And this is in relation to 4 billion actual human workers. So what's happened, though, is fossil carbon energy was always available and abundant and cheap. And we were finding it in new places as humans spread out across the world, um, especially in, in the new world. And so as economic theory was um, invented and refined over the 20th century, it didn't treat energy as anything special. You know, $60 worth of energy was $60 uh, uh, equivalent to $60 worth of, of cell phone electronics or beer uh, or a soccer ticket uh, or whatever. It didn't treat energy as anything special. And so that's still the, the core flaw in macroeconomic theory and underpinning all the institutions and government expectations of the world is that we only pay for the extraction of the main input to our economies. We don't pay for the creation, which is hundreds of millions of years of geologic time and pressure, or the pollution, which is causing the six mass extinction, acidifying our oceans and building CO2 in the atmosphere. So, so economic theory and, as a result, our entire culture is what I refer to as energy blind. We don't see that our lifestyles uh, and the damage to the environment is, is because of this dichotomy between energy and money. We just assume that money and thereby technological progress is driving our economy forward. When it's really both of those things are, are allowing, enabling more access to energy for the global economy. Uh, that's very interesting. But, and, and why will that change? And, and to what degree, you know, it's, it's talking about like finding a, you know, a bank vault of gold that's open and you can just take it and it's there. And it's, it's you know, and you take that for granted. Now, wh why, how is that process slowing down or stopping and to and why won't new energy sources like the sun which you know uh solar energy we've seen from tremendously uh exciting uh falls in uh in in, in the cost uh of, of, of energy from solar what why do you think that other renewable energy sources couldn't take over and and uh play play a similar role or play a, a, an important role that's a lot of questions, Virgo. Um, so let's let's focus on the depletion one first. Um, so if you take a bird's eye view, we're living in a period we could call the carbon pulse, which is this several hundred year period where human societies are supported by this ancient sunlight buried under the ground. 
But this stuff is not infinite, and we access the best first. Uh, and typically, a region or a country, uh, and eventually the whole world will extract the best, then add to that, and then hit a maximum, and then decline. The concept known as peak oil. The United Kingdom and Norway are long past their own peak oil um, production in the North Sea peaked uh, almost 20 years ago. Now the world, around 90 countries are already past peak. The United States is still growing its production and is now the largest oil producer in the world. And of course, I really don't like that language because we're not producing oil, we're extracting it, right? It was produced long ago in a trickle charge on Earth's battery. Um, but what's happened is we've used all the conventional, uh, easiest to find oil. And now over half of what the United States is uh, extracting is shale oil, tide oil, which is in the source rock. There's nothing left after the source rock. Now, there's a lot of it, but it's extremely costly. It costs over $60 a barrel to extract. And the oil price is actually below that, which is another problem. Um, so an average shale well depletes at 90% in the first three years. So we have to keep drilling more and more and more just to keep our production constant. So I think um, the concept of peak oil, which was very popular in 2006, 7, 8, is now on no one's minds. And yet it is a real significant danger right now of rapidly depleting uh, oil globally because the decline rate, uh, which is how much a field declines every year in production if you do nothing, is accelerating. And at the same time, the, the world economy can't support really high oil prices that oil companies would need to be profitable. So you're finding a lot of uh, uh, malinvestment or non-investment into future oil and gas supplies. So this decline rate is going to accelerate uh, in the next decade, and we're, we're going to have a real problem there. Now, to your question about solar, um, first, I mean, this is, this is a huge question, and I think the narrative right now is that renewables can plug and play and get rid of fossil fuels and will go on our merry way. And I am, uh, first and foremost, I'm in favor of renewable energy. Uh, I think it's uh, mature and robust and the technology is amazing. What I'm not in favor of is the narratives that say we can continue economic growth and living at this level of material throughput using renewables because I think that's impossible. So uh, just real quickly, um, a few points. First of all, yes, yeah, solar's gotten very cheap, um, but even if solar panels themselves were free, it wouldn't change much about our situation because the panels are only one part of a complex infrastructure, which requires inverters and transmission lines and all kinds of things. Number two is only about a fifth of our energy is electricity, um, which is the main energy type that solar, wind, geothermal can generate. 80% of our energy is transportation fuel and heat and, and things like that. There's all kinds of uh, energy co-products that come from a barrel of oil. Only two-thirds to three-quarters of a barrel of oil ends up with gasoline or diesel or, 
or jet fuel. The rest of it is is toothpaste and crayons and condoms and toilet seats and medicines and all kinds of things. So we can't make those products from solar, at least not now. Another problem, the, the biggest problem that I see, well, not the biggest, but a, a significant one is we're talking about going to a low carbon future, but what's happening is we're not swapping out coal with solar. We're just building a bigger heat engine. So if you look at the last 10 years, solar and wind have been growing very, very rapidly, far faster than fossil carbon uh, have been growing. Yet on an absolute basis, the growth in coal, oil, and natural gas still is dwarfing the amount of solar and wind. It's like 77% of the total. Uh, to wit, last year, 2018, the amount of electricity demand increase in the world was 500, uh, uh, I forget the exact numbers, but it was more than double the total amount of solar panel installations that have happened forever since the dawn of time. So we're, we're not, our current economic system can only grow, it can't subtract. So the problem that I see with the renewable story is there are no plans on how to build a system that may be 50% the size of our current system um, using predominantly renewables that would require a massive investment of fossil uh, natural gas and oil infrastructure as the seed corn towards that sort of future. But the market can't plan for that. The market can only plan for a bigger future. And so there's a real, there's a real unspoken problem there. Yes, it's... Um uh, Vaclav Schmiel has done, I don't know if you come across his work, you probably have. Uh, I, I, I love Vaclav Schmiel. He's amazing. He's, you know, I, I know him. He's very, all he wants to do is be left alone and, and write more books. But yeah, he's, he, he understands this cold. Yeah, the whole question of transitions and so forth and how long it has taken in the past and that each transition takes longer. And he's... Um, <laughs> quite a very uh, dark, uh, well, I won't say dark, but uh, uh, re re we could say realistic or harsh view of the actual timeframes involved and the kind of transition. Yeah, but, I mean, let, let's, let's briefly talk about that. We talk about dark or realistic. I am not dark. I, I mean, my view of the future is that we are living, uh, I don't know the UK statistics directly, but in the United States, the average citizen uses 100 times more energy than their bodies need. So if we had a 30% drop or a 40% drop, we would be back to the 1990s or 1980s. So these things don't have to be a disaster. We have to organize our human systems around something other than economic growth. But we're probably not going to do that voluntarily. So we need to start thinking about what do we need to do using intelligent foresight and wisdom so that when we get to these thresholds, we have some blueprints and plans? Well, I, these are some themes that, that have come up before in, 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 in some of the interviews. Um, and, you know, what you're saying is, uh, it, you know, you bring together from different perspectives. This question, you talk about the actual average uh, energy used uh, in, in America. The, the other issue, I think, related to that is, is 
that something like, you know, the 10% of high energy users account for a vastly disproportionate amount of, of actual energy use. So it's not evenly distributed. So this is a big issue that the, 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 the frequent flyers, the, the wealthiest percentages, top 10%, I think it is, accounts for, you know, more than half. Um, I don't know what the exact figures are, but, um, so that's a big part of it as well. So this question about economic growth, it's clearly, um, you know, some parts of the world absolutely need economic growth and other parts of the world absolutely do not need economic growth. And what you're saying there is, you know, about, 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 uh, in, in America and so forth. Uh, to what extent, um, you know, uh, you, you mentioned about the, 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 the uh, oil price and how much, uh, the, the world economy could tolerate increase in oil. I mean, there have been pretty, uh, substantial changes in the price of oil over the years um, and things keep going the, you know what you say about the peak oil are there not some people who would say well you know all the better that uh, you know that, that we, we we run out of oil uh, the oil prices go up there'll be more investment in alternatives um, you know and that's you know and here there's the market fundamentals and that's the way the market should work you know scarcity of oil prices go up new investments and alternatives and you know very quickly things will change yeah well those arguments are are very popular uh because um they give us uh they have they avert the dissonance that we have to change but the reality is they ignore the 500 billion fossil workers underpinning our economy and they assume that that economy and industry, uh, for example, China uh, has more uh, just fossil fuel use in their industry alone than the entire United States does. So we forget about all these steel and concrete and smelting and these really heavy industry that is reliant on uh, uh, oil, global supply chains, trucking that brings goods to the last uh, 10 miles to its destination. This is all a function of the hemoglobin of the global transport system, which is liquid, uh, um, liquid hydrocarbons in the form of diesel and gasoline. So if those get exorbitantly expensive there is no replacement for energy this is another problem in economic theory is the theory goes that if price goes up enough there will be an alternative and that's true for cell phones or textbooks or coffee cups but energy can only be substituted by similar form and quality energy and so we're to 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 produce and create those renewable energies that you described, you need to have the energy and the infrastructure on the front end to allow that. And by the way, these things are, are referred to in the public as renewables. The sun and the wind and the flows of the, the, the solar uh, cycles are renewable. But the mechanisms uh, that we use big wind towers with all the rebar forcing and steel and infrastructure and complicated inverter processes and things like that. These are rebuildable. These are not renewable. An oak tree is renewable. A chicken is renewable. But these things are no more renewable than a pickup truck. So we have to rebuild them every 20 years or 25 years uh, 
And that's another thing that's not really factored into our current plans. Yes. Is, is the idea of energy density helpful in talking about this? Yes. So energy density is the amount of energy that fits into a certain uh, volume or a certain weight. And diesel fuel, for example, is about the most energy dense substance ever used in human economies. And if you were to replace that with like a battery, a battery is hundreds of times less energy dense, which means we have to use massive size taking up area in, for example, an electric truck that would use a battery. You have to use a third of the size of the truck for the battery. So the energy density and the fact that it's transportable at room temperature has made fossil fuels indistinguishable from magic on any human timescales. And this is just not reflected in our academic, our media, or our political discussions because it's never really been a problem with the exception of a few energy crises in, in the 70s and 2008. Absolutely. Very interesting. And the, and the other thing to point out is, is we talk about the price there's a huge difference between price, cost, and value. So the price is what you and I pay when we fill up our gas tank or when we send in our electric utility bill at the end of the month. But the cost is what the oil and energy companies pay and what society pays. So the cost right now in the United States, the cost of oil is higher than the price of oil, which is a problem. The other thing is we've just finished seven century decline where energy as a percentage of our total economy declined from 100% or 80% seven, six or seven centuries ago because all of our economy was devoted to energy and food production. And then over time, it, it, it hit a low in 1999 of 5% of our economy. Only 5% of our economy went to energy finding, procuring, refining, and delivering. The other 95% of the economy was, was other stuff, arts and leisure and business and education and entertainment and all that. But now we're approaching where energy costs are, you know, eight or 9% of our economy is directed towards energy. And if we don't change our cultural direction, we're going to gradually become like a, a, a Mordor from the Lord of the Rings mining machine where we get have to devote 15 or maybe even 20% of our economy to the energy sector. And if we do that, um, we have to get rid of some of the other things that formerly were using energy, like arts and philanthropy and leisure and, and things like that. So we, we don't often think about the difference between price and cost. Um, and the other thing is value is, is these, these fossil hydrocarbons setting aside for the moment, the damage to the environment, what they've done for us is breathtaking. The average human today consumes in the terms of goods and services, 13 times more than the average human did, uh, 200 years ago. And this is largely a product of these armies of fossil helpers, um, so I, I think Fergal, you know, the narrative is this, we are faced with a carbon trap because the same things that are supporting our lifestyles and aspirations are also destroying 
the environment and the oceans. And we can't voluntarily give it up. Uh, but yet our continued use has major impacts, not only to the environment, but to future generations of humans. So this is a, this is a real puzzle. And I am of the opinion that the way it resolves is we're going to kick any can possible to keep economic growth going. But those cans we're kicking are going to be increasingly less sustainable and create more systemic risk. So the way I see this unfolding is a large uh, financial recalibration with the underlying energy and material uh, resources of the economy. This almost happened in 2008, but the central bank bazookas came out and we not only supported another decade of economic growth, but we invited China along to the party. And now, uh, in the same way that if you suppress forest fires for 100 years, you're going to get a massive forest fire, I no longer think we can have a mild recession. We're either going to continue to kick the can, and we'll do that as, as long as we can, and then we're going to have what I refer to as a great simplification which is pretty much a 30% drop in GDP in the developed world. And I, I personally think this is unavoidable now. Uh, and that's what we should be preparing for. Um, in the United States, we have 3,000 odd cities that have climate action plans. We have zero cities that have economic resilience plans for a 30% drop in GDP. Because what we've done as a social species, getting back to what we said earlier in this talk about growth constraint is we've used finance to obfuscate the fact that we've used finance to consume more than we could afford for a generation. And, and so we, we swim in credit like a fish swims in water. We just don't see how much of our lifestyles are dependent on energy and how much we're using credit to continue to access that energy and these are systemic risks just under the surface of our total situation. Right. That's, I would like to come back to that maybe as a final question to talk a little bit about that. But just one other question. Uh, you, you, you wove that all together very, very interesting way. Um, something that we, we haven't discussed. I don't know whether you, you, you've looked at it at all. But the fossil fuel industry is undoubtedly a very powerful industry. Um, and, you know, there's all kinds of controversies about um, what the big uh, fossil fuel companies knew and uh, suppressed and so forth. There's a massive amount of lobbying going on. There's a massive amount of uh, 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 astroturfing and organizations, you know. To what extent does, do you look at that or do you think about that or how important is that in terms of, I guess, what you call the capital, uh, you know, crowding out or... or, or, or um, just the, the, the influence of, of, of uh, big fossil fuel uh, or big oil on, on uh, how we deal with these problems? Well, first of all, I, I'm not a fossil fuel apologist, um, but I do think that blaming, for example, Exxon for climate change is like blaming Hitler's pancreas for the Holocaust. Fossil carbon is the problem. We are the users. They are the dealers. And so we have to have a, a, a deeper conversation about the metabolism of our civilization and the energy providing companies. They're doing the same thing as Walmart or Target or General Electric or Siemens or um, Boeing. They're, they're providing something that society wants. And if society didn't want that, um, then we should 
price that out somehow. Yet putting a carbon tax would be, given the multiplier effect of the benefits uh, that fossil energy gives societies, uh, that would mean a smaller economy. I'm willing to sign up for that. I know a lot of my students are willing to live a, a, a different future. Um, you know, they, they care about things beyond their immediate self-interest. They don't need 5G technology. They don't need an automobile. So that's where I think the conversation needs to go. I think casting stones at any corporation is, is not really the best use of our time because our, our system has self-organized around this trajectory. And yeah, so there was some uh, sociopaths at Exxon 30 years ago that knew about climate change. That is no surprise to me. But it, does, it doesn't worry you then, Nate, it doesn't worry you that, that uh, they, there is still uh, a false news that, that, there were the, that companies invested in, like the tobacco and creating uncertainty, that all of the, that side of things you, you think is just comes with the, comes with the territory? I, I do think it comes with the territory. I, I think it's part of our uh, it's, it's an, un, it's the dark underbelly of human nature that we self-organized, uh, based on the cultural signals of the time and the cultural signals of our time, Fergal, is that you, you go out and, and try to make money. And I am hopeful that we can self-organize around a different objective in the future. Uh, and yeah, those, those people that, that do those things are, are not good examples of what humans are capable of. But I don't, I guess my, my core point is if those things didn't happen, if Exxon would have called attention to the fact that fossil fuels uh, lead to climate change 30 or 40 years ago, I don't think what would have happened would have been much different. Right, right, right. Now, listen. The final point you make, and I think it's quite interesting. Now, you 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 mentioned this question of the debt uh, that's been amassed, and 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 the the overall scale of the debt. So, how do you tie that into to? Um, I mean, on on one level, clearly, it's kept the global economy running. You know, so at the simplest level, it's been responsible for economic growth. Um, is there another level at which you look at the the, the impact of debt in terms of uh, the, the, the our, our, our energy use? Well, energy is what enables economic growth. Um, up until the 1970s, it was like one for one. You grew your economy one unit, you had to grow your energy one unit. Since then, there's been some changes, some efficiencies, some new developments, and it's been about 99.3%. If you grew your economy a thousand units, you had to grow your energy 993 units. So energy is the driver of economies. But when we have uh, slower economic growth, for example, global oil production grew 6.6% a year for the 75 first years of the last century. And since the mid 70s, it's only grown at 1% a year. So we're continually treating our our, our financial architecture as a magic wand that we create some money out of thin air effectively and we use that money to access real energy and resources. So what we're doing is we're, we're accessing energy today that ordinarily without debt we might have used that energy in 2053 or whatever. 
And, and so we're pulling consumption to the present, but we can't do that forever. So when you issue debt, debt in uh, what they tr- teach in business schools, debt doesn't have to be a bad thing as long as it enables you to be more productive. And then you pay off your debt and you've, you've got this industry. But what the problem is, is since the 1960s, the global economy has grown its debt more than it's grown its income or GDP every single year. So now the global economy is something like 330% debt to GDP. So we are adding more and more debt every year, but we're growing our economy at only maybe 30% of that debt. So China right now has a very large economy, but they have $55 trillion of debt. It's just an enormous amount of debt. And what debt really is, uh, it's a claim on future energy. Money's a claim on energy, right? All the money you have in your pocket or all the money you have in your bank account, eventually you're going to spend it on something. And that something is linked to a small fire somewhere on the planet because there's energy embedded in every single good and service. So debt is a claim on future energy. And what's happened is the the $250 trillion of global debt we don't have the energy and materials to pay all that back. So the other level is we've created, and let's just be, I'll just be totally blunt, it is a Ponzi scheme that we do not have the energy and materials to pay back all our debt. And in my opinion, sometime in the next decade, that recalibration will occur. And that's going to be what, what I think we have to respond to. And I think that's the moment where we have blueprints and conversations about governance, about fossil carbon taxes, about other taxes on non-renewable uh, uh, inputs to our economies, about financial transaction taxes to to get rid of kind of this casino capitalism we have, to have caps and floors on income to support the poor and make sure that the CEO doesn't make a million times more than the janitor and, and all sorts of things like that that couldn't happen in our politically frozen situation today. So you don't think, you think that the burning ship is going to, what's going to create the conditions for change that until we reach a crisis that the, the, the little is going to happen? I, yes, because our, I think the metabolism of the ship is, is, is unstoppable. We are, in, uh, we are passengers, Fergal, on a runaway train and where they're shoveling coal, oil, and gas in, into the engine. And I think the, the, the important thing to do is self-organize in the cars of the train with people who care about the future, who understand how this all fits together, who can become psychologically and physically resilient and, and be metaphorical rocks in the river as events change in the future. Because again, I, I mean, there's a lot of talk about collapse, and I really hate that word because it implies that it's binary. We either collapse or we don't. Well, first of all, it's, it's not binary, and second of all, it's already happening in many places of the world. Venezuela is, is under some form of collapse right now. I prefer to look at it as a bend or a break scenario. And a bend scenario is we're going to have a, a, a depression. And how we use that as an opportunity 
to recraft our, our aspirations and our institutions is the calling of our time. And that is what's going to change the climate and, and uh, mass extinction debates more than the current um, demonstrations, et cetera. I mean, I'm, I'm both frustrated and, and hopeful by the Extinction Rebellion people. That's my tribe. These are people that care about the future and care about other species and generations. Um, but climate change isn't the problem. It's a symptom of this larger issue which is the metabolism of global energy use linked to human overshoot. So the conversation needs to eventually go to, I care about the future, future humans, future dolphins, future ecosystems, and I'm willing to live quite a bit differently to align with that future, and we have to have a movement uh, headed in that direction. Right, absolutely. What's next for you, Nate? What's on your mind? What are you, what, what are you going to be working on? What, what are you... you where, where are you focused? I think this is a huge story, and I've been working on it for 15 years. And in my experience, young people and old people understand this and take it on board. Um, and people between the age of 25 and 65, this is too much of a sledgehammer, uh, too dissonant with their job, uh, their boss, their college tuition for their kids, and on all the the other things. So I've been focused on, on educating and inspiring young people uh, towards uh, examples of humans living differently, especially in a wealthy uh, country like, like the United States. I think we have to understand our situation uh, and roll our sleeves up. And I, I think giving people kind of bullshit hope is not the right uh, uh, path. I think we have to recognize our situation, have resolve and, 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 you know, work towards more benign futures. So one of the main things I'm working on is I, I, you know, I've been following remotely the political situation in, in Europe and the UK, but in the, in America, it's now devolved to so badly that it's about the messenger and not the message. So I think some sort of initiative that gets across the point that, look, we're going to have an election. Someone's going to win. Someone's going to be our next president. Might be who you voted for, might not be. But irrespective of who is our president, here are the issues that we all face. And we're, I, I really think that we need uh, investments and support in social capital. People on the left talking to people on the right, finding shared values and common ground. Because if we don't maintain respect and trust in media, in science, in our fellow citizen, then, then we, we can't hold it together, this, this longer-term cultural evolution narrative, which, which I think is, is possible and, and the direction we need to go. So I'm, I'm going to be working on, on um, you know, kind of a different apolitical description of, of our situation and getting people talking about the real problems but in a nonpartisan way uh, and, you know, kind of navigating the next three to five years of, of social and economic uh, disruption. Well, that's a great vision, Nate, and I wish you the very best of success with that. And thank you so much for joining me today on the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Great. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. It would be great if you could leave a review and share the podcast on social media. 
You can sign up at iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes. <laughs>